This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. This is a very special episode of Book Public. I'm joined by Sandra Cisneros, the author of a novel that's been translated to 26 languages and has sold 7 million copies. That novel is The House on Mango Street, the coming-of-age story about Esperanza Cordero and the denizens of her barrio in Chicago. Now, a hardcover 40th anniversary edition of this beloved novel has been released as part of the esteemed Everyman's Library imprint. Every Man's Library pursues the highest production standards. They produce gorgeous editions of classics and contemporary classics. They include a select bibliography and a chronology of the author's life and times. They also include an introduction. John Philip Santos has penned the introduction to this special edition of The House on Mango Street and explains the significance of Sandra Cisneros as a deserving author in the pantheon of great authors in this series. Here's my conversation with Sandra Cisneros and John Philip Santos. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Thank I'm you. having an incredible deja vu 40 years later. This is when I arrived 40 years ago in January of 84. That's right. Yeah. Very auspicious. And my yeah. book, too. We and both appeared in, too. in Texas at the same time. And the book is The House on Mango Street. The other reason that we're here is to talk about something really spectacular, which is the 40th anniversary publication of The House on Mango Street from Every Man's Library. That's something so special. And that's what we're going to talk about today, The House on Mango Street, but also Every Man's Library. I want to ask you, Sandra, Every Man's Library has such a special place in my Memories as a as a child who loved to read. What is Every Man's Library about for you? Were you aware of it when you were a young girl, thinking about learning to write and wanting to be a writer? No, uh, I have to say I didn't think about editions or, you know, certainly when I got older and you know looked longingly at hardcover books, but I couldn't afford books like that when I was growing up. And usually the books I had were borrowed from the library. So um, the fact that it existed, I, I don't know how long it's been in my consciousness, but it's uh, unreal for me because one, I'm not a man and uh, two, I'm not dead. Right. Okay. But okay. So this idea, maybe John, maybe you can explain to us, what does it mean to have, what is the Sandra Cisneros's literary influence in terms, in the context of every man's library? Well, um, it's extraordinarily auspicious and important um, that Hassel Mango Street would have this 40th anniversary um, reappearance under this imprint. You know, it's the imprint is over 100 years old. I don't know the exact birth date of the Everyman series, but the idea originally was to create affordable editions of world literary philosophical classics. So you know, Plato's Republic and um, a little bit of Shakespeare and um, maybe some Wordsworth. Um, important to note, in the occasion of the 40th anniversary of Mango Street and its imprint under the Everyman's Library series, this is the first book in the series by uh, an American Latinx writer. It, it tells you something about the place of Mango Street in literary culture but it also says something about how long it took every man's library to include these kinds of letters. You know, what it means for 
that series, as auspicious as legendary and historic as it's been, the first voice we get um, is Sandra's. What is that? What do you think it is about the house on Mango Street that has just captured people's attention for four, really for 40 years? And it's it's sold over 7 million copies. It's been translated to what is it like 26 languages, something yeah. like that. I mean, it's out yeah. there in the world, Sandra. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. I think that, you know, sometimes a book captures the spirit of an age. I'm, I'm very lucky that this book does that. I wrote it uh, with all my heart for others. I think that's part of the secret. I didn't write it to win awards or to get published in every man's edition. I wrote it as a high school teacher uh, who loved her students and uh, didn't want to see them harmed and wish them the very best lives that they merited. And I just didn't know how to make that happen. So I just wrote with all my heart and with no, no ego involved, no self-gain. And I, I think that's what House has taught me, that whatever we create, con puro amor y amor puro, siempre sale bonito. Whatever we create with absolute pure love, with the purity of no ego involved, is always going to turn out well. That's the one thing I know for sure of the laws of the universe that has touched the 69 years I've been on the planet. Well, John Philip Santos wrote the introduction for this edition of The House on Mango Street, and he talks about and quotes his daughter talking about what the book means to her. John, can you talk a little bit about that? Speaking of being a teacher who's thinking about young people, makes me think about that part of your introduction and how this what this book means to your daughter. Yeah, well, as she says, and uh, her response is quoted in its entirety, and yes. so unedited and unexpurgated. Um, I think Francesca speaks to the way all readers come to this book. Um, she says specifically that it awakened for her an understanding of the beauty of Latinidad, of being Mexican-American, being Chicana, Chicanex, for anybody who reads Mango Street over these last 40 years, there was this kind of sense of being struck by a unique voice. It, it's, not a, it's not a book that you can easily categorize as a novel, for instance. You know, it could be just as easily seen as a carousel of prose poems. It could be seen as a, um, a spiritistic rumination. Esperanza's consciousness is sort of roaming the world that she lives in and she seems to have a kind of a, a kind of knowing that we can't really fully account for um she's got these powers of observation but it's something that really struck me on this reading the extent to which it, it prefigures so much of what sandra has written about in terms of this spiritual orientation that is connected to literary creativity mango street 40 years ago appeared i think as a thunderbolt in Chicanex letters, so in the in the literary culture of Mexican-American uh, communities. We'd been very familiar with movimiento-oriented idioms of literary expression. Um, suddenly there was this voice that was, she was urban, she, it was an urban setting, uh, it ranged in time, it had a memory of, of the past and a kind of intimacy of a family experience, but it was uh, a thunderbolt in American letters. It was an illustrative of just saying, 
this is how Mexican Americans live, this is what we eat, this is how we uh, dream and imagine. It was um, it was a, a kind of a, a reckoning of a presence of of this this uh, literary consciousness that would then grow into the global scope that you talked about a, mon a moment ago. That this is a book that can really be understood as a, a deeply human uh, presence, and I think that is one of the reasons why it's so important that that it um, comes under the Everyman's Library imprint. That you know it, it kind of takes its place in this global arena of literary voices. Something that, that you know, as, as Sandra pointed out when we were talking about um, developing the, the, um, the introduction, you know, the, the community of writers that were part of this period, Sherry Moraga and Ana Castillo, women and queer writers uh, who were really redirecting, Gloria Ansaldúa, uh, redirecting the current of of um, Chicanex creativity, that was going to be transformative not only for our letters, for for Mexican American letters, but for American letters and for for global literary culture. I think that's a really important part of of what this really represents. Well, I didn't see that when I got here. I got really baptism by fire by yeah. the local mail writers mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. dismissed my book as not being political. Mm -hmm because it wasn't political in the way they knew political. And I just remember mm. the reception I got and how bad I felt when my book came out, you know, that first year. It really didn't take off till like eight years later. Mm. So it was a long overnight success. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, uh, you know, this isn't, I was reacting to the genre of, of uh, Viva la Raza literature when yeah. I wrote the book. It was a response to the male perspective of my community. And I remember thinking, no, that's not how it is for me. Mm. So I was responding and writing from that perspective. So of course, um, the, the male writers in San Antonio didn't recognize my book as uh, something that was a uh, part of the movimiento. But you were bringing um, a host of uh, diverse literary and artistic influences into play that went, you know, well beyond where the, the movimiento literature had been. Well, I think the only ones that were uh, accepting and uh, inclusive were you and Dr. Ellen Riojas Clark and the painter Cesar Martinez, who uh, welcomed me because it was a very xenophobic <laughs> reception I got to Texas in 84. It was so harsh that I thought, I'm going to stick this position for out for a year and then I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. <laughs> That's what I, I promised myself. But I, I've always been one of those people that I can't quit a job until at least I've been there a year. And uh, so I worked on the uh, Texas Small Press Book Fair and that was a success. A, a, you know, a year after I had initiated uh, my job here in, at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center. And uh, I left. Uh, I, I was planning to leave when I uh, got a phone call from uh, UT Austin giving me the Dobby Paisano residency. I, I had a, yeah. a flower pot in my hand. I was wrapping with newspaper mm -hmm. when they called and said, you won and you're going to have six months outside of Austin and a beautiful residency. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> and I just said, oh, thank you. And I thought, now I have to buy a car. 
Now I have to stay in Texas. And it was as if Divina Providencia was saying, not so fast. And that stay at the Dobi Paisano changed my, my life. It really is what sealed me staying in Texas. Even if I couldn't find a job, which I could not, uh, I kept going away and uh, working in other institutions outside of Texas and uh, coming back summers and uh, saving my money and renting apartments for $200 a month for way after most apartments were not. But living with the ghost of J. Frank Dobie there. Oh, that yes. That was a, like a, the, yes. the Texas reckoning. The I Texas forgot about that reckoning. ghost. <laughs> I forgot about that. There's a good story, but I don't know if I can tell it on this radio show. <laughs> Do you want to tell it? Well, I don't know. Um, no, I better not. It's kind of okay. X-rated. <laughs> well, well, I do want to talk a little bit about this idea of not feeling, a feeling that your book wasn't welcomed by certain people. And there's no accounting for, for taste or motives or whatever. But it makes me think about how, even though this has sold 7 million copies and it's been translated to 26 languages, et cetera, it's taught in the schools at all levels. And it's also been banned. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I have to clarify that the book may not have been well received by my fellow San Antonio writers, but it was well received by uh, teachers and librarians. They were my advocates and I thank them then and now for always supporting me. Uh, and uh, then and now librarians are always on the front line of defending uh, books. But uh I, I don't think my book was targeted per se. Well, that's not true. It has been targeted sometimes because it's a it deals with heavy topics, but it deals with them in a very subtle poetic way so that uh, there are no bad words in my book. Uh, there's nothing graphic. Uh, a child could read it, and unless you're initiated into the trauma that I'm writing about, you won't know what I'm saying because I, I wrote about it uh, slant so that it would not be caught by the censors. However, uh, you know, we have had the book banned in some instances. And um, I don't feel it's my book per se. I think sometimes it's the whole program that my book has been a part of that's uh, created issues. For example, in Arizona, when the book was banned along with Mexican-American studies. So it, it wasn't specifically my book, but I think the whole idea of a community's consciousness that was questioned. I think that there's no question about the fact that so many people have read this book, young people at all levels of education. I'm a teacher. I've used the book in my classes for many, many years. I can tell you, I, I've had students say to me, students from the university say, I had to call my dad and read it to him. I just felt like sharing it with someone. Or I called my mom and I read her this this vignette or that vignette. Or they'll say, I'm not selling this one back, right? <laughs> At the end of the semester, they want to sell their books back, but not this one. Oh, so, that's so nice. Year after year of, of this, of engaging yeah. with my students. And, you know, we have to talk about the Bildungsroman of it all, the unreliable narrator of it all, and all of that. But they get to talk about houses and homes and family and friendships and growing up and rites of passage and death and the aspiration that 
maybe they haven't really identified yet. It's this nebulous thing, but Esperanza comes to it at a certain point near the end of the book. But one of the things that I'm always really struck by is that they want to talk about the three sisters. And we go back and forth about the three sisters. Is it something sort of mystical? Is it something supernatural? Is it something? And I always say to them, you know, these are women of a certain age. They've been around and they see it all and they're very perceptive and they're just able to see something in Esperanza that they don't see every day or they don't see all the time in some of the other children. And they're like, no, it's something else. So we're usually a little bit divided and it can be both. I love that push and pull and that discussion and that debate that we always get to have. And it shows that the book is really a lot of different things to still, still. And, it's and I'm happy that you brought that up because um, those characters came to me when I was in finishing the book in, in Greece. And so it makes sense that uh, the, it would be a triad of women uh, who are uh, visionaries uh, la, las uh, señoras who you go to consult when you need uh, clairvoyant or you need a limpia. Uh, and I'm working on the, this year, not only is it the 40th anniversary, but Derek Brumel, the composer, and I are finishing House on Mongo Street, the opera. So we've developed uh, the three sisters as the tres shamanas. Hmm. We call them the tres shamanas, and they're the ladies in, in the opera. They're the ladies who have the pushcart selling atole and tamales, hmm. and you will see them switch from their aprons to their full regalia and power when a scene happens that they need to come in hmm. and, and rescue and cleanse our protagonists from trauma. So it's really wow. nice to, at, at this age, uh, to look at a book I wrote when I started it when I was 21, and I'm 69 now, and to be redeveloping, rediscovering, fleshing out the characters, exploring the book, and going back and, and filling in uh, the gaps. It's a great pleasure to collaborate with a, a musician, composer, who can say, well, what about for this character if we put this kind of music? And, you know, just to work with in one more dimension of, theater and performance and lighting and costume. And it's just uh, exciting. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Well, I will tell you that uh, they always choose Alicia as their favorite. I want to be Alicia because she was really fighting for it. She was <laughs> taking the bus and she was staying up mm. all night and she had you know, nobody to support her. Right, because they're living mm. that life. Because mm. they're living it. Exactly. It's really something else. They also tell me, just so you know, that you're the queen of the similes. They they tell me that they understand things because of the way you describe them and that you are the queen of the similes. Well, I don't <laughs> try to uh, make those comparisons. They just pop out they of my head because that's I've always been like that, even as a child, where everything came to me by way of simile and still does. And uh, so it's not that I sit there scratching my head yeah. thinking, <laughs> how can I get a simile? No, they just, they just uh, bubble up. Well, they say you nail it. Every time. Thank <laughs> so, you so much. It communicates I it. so clearly. I, I think one of the great things for me is that I'm alive and I get to meet my audience and to read their letters every month. My audience writes to me at my web address and sends me the most beautiful letters, whether they're in China or in Egypt or whether they're someone from the Valley or from my own hometown, Chicago. And they write me such beautiful letters that if I ever doubt that I made a difference on this planet, I just have to whip out one of those letters and weep and think, 
how did I get so lucky? I, I have no idea. Que suerte la mía. Me siento muy bendecida. I'm just so lucky. And all my ancestors and angels have been helping me because there's no way. How is it that like the library isn't full of these stories? Because all, all the women I know from my community have lived extraordinary stories. And I, I'm just one of the few that path was open. I think that's why I'm so committed to working with other writers and, you know, working on uh, Makondo workshop. And because I know there are writers as good as me and better. I know that. And it just happens that maybe they write poetry instead of fiction, or maybe they wrote a hundred years ago, or they write in Catalan, or they're born in Mexico, whatever. I've just been very lucky that that my ancestors were pushed out of Mexico during the Mexican Revolution. My grandparents, who couldn't read or write, somehow migrated and were migrant farm workers up along the Southwest and made it to Chicago and allowed me to get an education. I'm just, uh, when I think about that, I, I have so much gratitude. John Philip, you refer to this story as a quest story in the introduction. You call mm. it a quest. You use the word mm -hmm. and the idea of journey and, and this path that Esperanza is on. Yesterday, I happened to be watching The Power of Film on mm. Turner Classic Movies, mm -hmm. a documentary series about mm. film. And someone on someone they were interviewing there said, some of the most memorable films are not about journeys, they're about being trapped. Mm. And he kept using that word, trapped, trapped, mm. trapped. And he talked about Shawshank Redemption, maybe that's mm -hmm. expected. But then he talked about um, Mrs. Robinson, The Graduate. Mm. Mm. Talked about the graduate and mm. other films that seemed unlikely to me as films mm. about being trapped. And I kept thinking about the house on Mango Street. And I thought, is this about Esperanza on some certain level feeling trapped in a space, an emotional space, a mental space, a physical space that she wasn't necessarily proud of, happy with, satisfied with, or she wasn't going to settle for the fact that mm. that was all there was. Mm. I kept thinking about that. It's very interesting. You know, it's, it seems so obvious mm. as I'm saying it right now, but, but yeah, there it is. What do you think about that idea? I think that's absolutely right because when I was in my 20s writing it, um, I felt censored about what I was living and I censored mm. myself and felt censored at the workshop that I was studying at in Iowa. So I took an earlier voice. With, you know, I, I like writers, young writers, to, to take an earlier time because they have some perspective they take an earlier time. So of course, if you're 21 and you take the perspective of 10 years ago, that's your childhood. Hmm. And uh, I was writing it, but I was still in my 20s feeling very trapped about what society was giving me, what my family expected of me and what my community and my life was offering me. You know, uh, I didn't have a lot of options. And I felt that through Esperanza, I was being allowed to explore, okay, this is not what I want. I can see my neighbors and the people around me, but can I pick something that's not on the menu? And what is that that I want? The women's movement wasn't giving it to me either because I didn't identify with the white women's movement. And I didn't discover uh, third world uh, women's feminism till I left university. So I was asking through Esperanza 
something that Rosario Castellanos was asking, tiene que ver otro modo de ser. There has to be another way to be. But what is it? I was asking through her, through, all through my 20s, you know, how, how do I get out of Chicago? How do I get out of the obligations my family has for me? I don't want to be an English teacher, but that's all I know how to do. I, I want to be a writer, but I'm ashamed to say it. And how do I, the daughter of an upholsterer and a housewife, the granddaughter of, of, of ancestors that maybe couldn't read or write, how do I claim that? I was asking that through my little girl character. Yeah, you know, that's that's something that I think is <clears throat> such an important part of the voice of Esperanza in Mango Street or in the, as I've been calling it, the every mango now, the every mango. <laughs> uh, the, um, the fact that um, when we experience her voice, um, we are being given this incredible liberty um, to break out of all of the strictures that had prevailed um, up until this period in the mid eighties, the movimiento literature sort of yoked creativity to um, activism and to the Aztec warrior mentality and all of those trappings that were very important in their time. And they had an incredible role to play, but they had become uh, limiting in a sense. And um, she gives us a, the Esperanza's voice gives us a way of thinking about you know, um, a kind of a human spirit that's untethered, um, that has this connection. It's one of the reasons why it has that kind of global impact that that um, people everywhere can identify with with precisely her quest. In, in the case of Esperanza, it's a, she tells us at the very beginning, it's a quest for a home. Mm -hmm. And and it's very much about the, um, the way that she imagines uh, this home to be and some motif that carries on in, in Sandra's work in all kinds of different ways. Um, that's an, a really important turn in, in Mexican American letters. Um, you know, the one that has, has given a lot of us permission to go all over the globe, all over, all over the cosmos, um, in this search for a sense of belonging and presence and the way that we can speak to it using, literary creativity. We were talking about this earlier this morning um, about, you know, writing as a practice that helps us, you know, toward an understanding of ourselves, the complexity of ourselves, no simple resolutions, but um, the idea of a, of a writing practice that, that gives us a sense of connection to spiritual search, you know. And when Sandra and I met 40 years ago, so it's 40th anniversary of our chance encounter, uh, partly facilitated by the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center, because we were both finalists for the job that Sandra got. So then I was then I was forced into a twenty year exile in New York City in shame. Uh, <laughs> um, but one of the remarkable things about meeting Sandra then was the extraordinary power she already had in her twenties. We were in our twenties to be serious about the writing path. Mm -hmm. That this wasn't just something you dabbled in. It wasn't something you um, aspired to for fame and fortune. That there was this dharma aspect to it, the kind mm -hmm. of a spiritual path. Um, and it was something I knew as well, but, but couldn't have articulated it in the way that Sandra did in that time and express it 
in the uh, writing of Mango Street, which I think was already when you got here, it was it was slated for publication already at Arte Publico, no? Uh, I I wrote it and finished it when I was twenty eight, but it took two years before it came into print. Uh, there was so some it was delays. about to it was about to be published. Yeah. When so when here. I got here, I was thirty. Uh, I had written it all from twenty one to twenty eight, mm. and uh, it. I was 30 years old, and the book came out when I was 30, but I finished it when I was 28, yeah. You know, and it, <clears throat> it captures the, the rich uh, strains of, of Esperanza's voice in the way that Sandra was just talking about, captures the depth of, of our ancestral knowing or the depth of our ancestral legacies, you know, um, which we had not really yet fully fathomed, much less uh, been able to access in terms of uh, a way of thinking about uh, making literary uh, work. Um, so, for instance, you know, these days people are, are, are very proud, rightly so, say, I'm first gen. I'm first gen, you know, and and that's something very important, the first in your family history to go to college, for mm -hmm. instance, so mm -hmm. higher ed. But what about all the other gens before that? That maybe not higher ed, but all kinds of life experiences and journeys and and visions and acts of witness. How do we speak to them? Yeah. You know, so we're infinite gen. You know, we're sort of uh, numberless gen, really, uh, in terms of all that our ancestral uh, legacy carries with it. And um, I think there, there there's already that presence in Mango Street. Definitely comes forward in in the stories that would follow and in Caramelo, mm -hmm. in the epic multi generational yes. telling in, in Caramelo. I'm so glad you said that. Well, first, I want to say one thing first before I lose the thread. In the introduction that you wrote for this uh, 40th edition from Every Man's Library, you say that in 1983, Sandra was vivacious, loquacious, audacious, with an electric halo of ebony curls. <laughs> I just think that's so beautiful and so perfect. Uh, writing was an act of bounding invention and social conscience, and that it was a lengthy and bumpy road to the everyman's library. Yeah. I think people take that, take it for granted, right? That it was just yeah. like she just, her star was on the rise. Yeah. And of course, right. we know that that's not the case. As Sandra just said, it was an eight year overnight <laughs> yeah. sensation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, An overnight sensation that took eight years to and, materialize. And, and went through Dark Night of the Soul in my 33rd year, yeah. you know, which was, I always call the year of my near death because I went through such a deep uh, clinical depression that I uh, considered very seriously in many different ways of exiting my life. It just seemed um, the least painful way to survive was to die. And so in my 33rd year, when I was uh, teaching at Cal State Chico, I had intended and planned out, you know, I always thought that, you know, when you call uh, suicide hotlines hmm. that, you know, it's people that are dramatic and no, they, they really are. They, they ask you when you call these suicide hotlines, a specific question, like, how do you plan to kill yourself? And if you're calm and you have it all thought out, then they worry about you. Hmm. And, and I was very calm and had everything very deeply planned out because I felt in my 33rd year, that House of Manga Street was uh, not enough. It had garnered me maybe $500 every edition. 
And $500 was not enough to prove that I could take care of myself. And I felt ashamed that I had to keep borrowing from my family. I felt like I can't even support myself by the one thing I know how to do. So uh, I, I felt like people my age at 33 had cars and health insurance and jobs. And I was a migrant, uh, a reluctant migrant professor following the food supply, taking a job, Chico, you know, just moving around. I couldn't find a job in Austin. And I'd quit my job after a year in San Antonio. So I felt like, yeah, you know how to write and you've written this book, but so what? And uh, when you measure yourself against other people your age, you're doing yourself a disservice because your path is not their path. I learned that afterwards, but I went through a very severe depression and something common for working class people. I didn't know that I could seek help with a therapist because when you come from a working class home, uh, if you tell your mother, as I did, I'm depressed, uh, my mother said, what are you depressed about? I had seven kids. <laughs> you know, And it was true. I didn't have any kids yet, seven kids. And what was I depressed about? Because I couldn't make money and I was ashamed of borrowing again. So I just said, okay, yeah, Ma, I'll talk to you later. And I didn't know that uh, a heart wound was as serious as a flesh wound. And there, there was no shame if you needed to see uh, someone to help you survive it. Uh, so I'd like to talk about that, that even though I had the success of house, there were deep, dark nights of the soul I learned about. One, the uh, depression we have as women, the depression we have as artists, the depression that we have as working class people in higher education where we feel we are interlopers and don't belong. We don't see ourselves in literature. We don't see ourselves in art. We don't see ourselves in classroom. And that can create a lot of doubts. So I went through a very close call. Unfortunately, um, my intuition has always saved my life. I went home. Uh, for Christmas to my mother's address because that was my only permanent address. And my mom said, there's a letter from Washington, D.C. I think it's good news. I didn't take off my coat. I put my suitcase down. I opened the letter and it said, congratulations. National Endowment for the Arts has granted you a grant for $20,000. And I just exhaled and said, mom, give me some paper. And I come from a house where my mom doesn't have stationery. She had a ring binder with a spiral. That's what I wrote on. And I wrote to the NEA and thanked them and told them they literally had saved my life. Wow. I didn't know the story. So. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I, I served on the NEA as one of the judges uh, and thanks for the two NEA grants that they had granted me. And I said, you have to let the artists know that they've gotten this award as soon as possible. Because when I was considering, you know, my path out of this life, that's when that my manuscript was being judged. But they couldn't tell me until later in the year because the budget for the NEA had not been finalized. Mm. Oh, my goodness. I know. So one of the things I always say when I look at things like the Everyman's Edition is, good thing I'm not dead. <laughs> well, uh, I want to talk about these paths. You mentioned them, too. And the other gens, mm. because the other gens are in this book too. And the other gens are the upholsterer father and the housewife who took you to the library. Yeah. Mm. So I feel like, like, yeah, like we need to talk.
talk about that too or think about that too when we think about something like this. Yeah. That this this path started with them, the other gens, and the paths that they've been on. Alicia's father, mm. who she might think isn't supportive, but her mother has died and her father doesn't have the wherewithal to support what she wants to do to go to school and so on. And there are many other vignettes, many other characters like that, the other paths, the other stories that are told. I just think that's so important. So I'm so glad you mentioned your mother. But yes, even though she's saying, you know, what do you have to be sad about? <laughs> I've heard that too. <laughs> um, but uh, she's she's the other Jen, and she really inspired your love of, of reading and books. Yeah, and she also is like the tough character in my life that has allowed me to survive all the blows that life has given me because, you know, she was trying to make me strong by saying, what have you got to be <laughs> depressed about? That was her way. And But she also was the one that said, open that letter. I think it's good news before I even took my coat off. So, uh, you know, she, she was a tough cookie, as she's tough described cookie. in the book. And uh, she had this um, itch to be an artist and was never able to satisfy it and took us to the library and to the museums because of her own absolute need to have mm. something other than the housewife's life or she was going to go crazy. And uh, she opened the path without meaning to, to all of my siblings and myself, to have a, a better education than what our neighborhood would have afforded us, what our economic status would have afforded us. Because my mom was in museums since she was a child. She would go with her neighbor. She would play hooky. She would climb out the window and escape from her Saturday chores and walk from Halstead and Roosevelt down to the Field Museum, which is a couple miles and she would spend the day in the museum with her friend Frances, and there's photos of my mom with her friend Frances. And all through her life, you know, they would go to the planetarium and the museums and downtown, which at that time were free on the weekends. And my mom uh, just knew that growing up, that was the thing you did, and that's what you did when you had seven kids. And you can't pay admission on the other days. You go on the weekend and you take your children and Maybe she was with us or she might have sat in the park and listened to an, an aria at the Grant Park band shell and said, I'm going to be right here. You, you go in there and leave me alone for an hour, <laughs> you know. And uh, we did. And we got so much out of it. You know, even though we were running around and yelling and chasing each other, uh, a lot of what I saw in those museums crops up in my writing, the, the Matisse's and the Van Gogh's and the gem room and the dinosaurs and the mummies. All of those things are part of my education, thanks to my mom, who wanted to be an artist. That's so beautiful. It makes me think about my parents and my connection to Everyman's Library. We would go to Port Aransas for family vacation, very low frills. Uh, but there was a place called Souvenir City. It's old souvenirs. And in the rear of the store, there were floor-to-ceiling, ceiling-to-floor shelves of used books. I guess people on the island would go and drop their books off there when they were done with their, you know, Reader's Digest abridged or whatever. And there were, th my parents would say no, 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 no to, to tchotchkes and souvenirs and, you know, uh, shark's tooth necklace, not another shark's mm -hmm. tooth necklace uh, or a sand dollar in a box, mm -hmm. you know, why? Mm -hmm. uh, but they said yes to the books every mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, 
I always got to buy books. And some of those books were, yes, those Reader Digest abridged mm. or unabridged. And also every man's library books. And there was, you know, Chekhov and mm. the rest. And, and it was something for me, like it was just seeing that those two words, every man's library, it felt to me like this must be real, something really mm. good. This must be something mm. really, really special. And I want to read it. So that's my feeling about, oh my gosh, when I heard that the house on Mongo Street would be published, I just thought, there it is. This is perfect. This is absolutely perfect. And I think about that girl in Souvenir City saying, oh my gosh, I want that one. <laughs> I had that uh, situation too, Yvette, but I had it at the Sears Roebuck uh, um, mail order store on Holman in Chicago. It had a bargain basement. And a lot of damaged uh, items were returned and sold at super discounts. And that's where I bought my first book ever, wow. a copy of Alice in Wonderland, one of my favorite then and now. Still one of your favorites, right? Yes. It's yeah. still, I still have it in my bedside, a, a new edition, of course, not the 50 cents cheapy edition that I, that I bought <laughs> and spilled perfume on. But, oh. you know, it was uh, every time I opened that book, I would smell it. It smelled so great. How beautiful. I love that. I love this. <laughs> I wonder, I'm putting you on the spot, but I wonder if you would read A House of My Own. Yeah, I, I like that chapter. Mm. It's a beautiful aria that Derek Bermel has composed with these words. A house of my own. Not a flat, not an apartment in back, not a man's house. Not a daddy's, a house all my own. My porch and my pillow, my pretty purple petunias, my books and my stories. My two shoes waiting beside the bed. Nobody to shake a stick at. Nobody's garbage to pick up after. Only a house. Quiet as snow, a space for myself to go, clean as paper before the poem. I think that last paragraph is my epigraph. <laughs> That's so beautiful. Thank you. Epitaph. For... <laughs> epigraph and epitaph. <laughs> Let it say epigraph today. <laughs> Sandra Cisneros, thank you so much. Lovely. Thank you, Yvette. You're always a pleasure to talk to. John Philip Santos, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Yvette. Us. Thank you, Sandra. Oh, for all the friendship then and now. Gracias a ti. My thanks to Sandra Cisneros and John Philip Santos for joining me on this special episode of Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Please consider going to our TPR webpage for more information about Sandra Cisneros and John Philip Santos. And there you will also find a link to a YouTube video with my conversation with Sandra Cisneros and John Philip Santos recorded live in the Santicos studios at Texas Public Radio. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. 